Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas with Bela and Mike. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz, a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now actually retired. Uh, before I retired, I was the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship uh, here at Clarkson University. And coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoy listening to this as much as Bela and I enjoy creating it. Um, Several of you have asked, Mike, why do you do this? Um, and I can tell you for sure it's not about making money, but uh, Bela and I are, are friends and we like to learn from smart, interesting people about how the world is changing. Uh, we both are interested in innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, and we like to overlay our observations and compare them with the lessons that we've both learned over three plus decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors. To do this, we've put together our network of interesting friends, former students, and business partners, along with other people we've met more recently, to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. So today's guest is Richard Stokes. He is the founder and CEO of Winston Privacy. This is his second company. Uh, his first company was AdGuru which was a data integrator and uh, basically a company that helped advertisers connect to people uh, who might be interested in buying their products. And he used data from, he aggregated data from the internet uh, to do this. And after doing that for a number of years, uh, after they were acquired, uh, he sort of said, gee, you know, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do anymore. And he saw all sorts of privacy issues. So uh, he started his second company, uh, which is Winston Privacy, which is in the business of, uh, as he puts it, stopping the ad industry and others from spying on you. So sort of an interesting twist and pivot there in uh, his career. And uh, so we had a great conversation over Skype. So, uh, Mike, what was uh, one thing that sort of uh, stuck out at you? Well, I think... Um, Rich was an interesting person with a background in advertising. And there's a point in the conversation that you'll hear um, that he says, oh, not all advertising is bad. And, you know, I guess as, as uh, somebody who kind of teaches a little bit about marketing, um, yeah, it's this continuum between educational on the, the best positive side as advertising should educate consumers about a product's features and benefits, um, persuasive to convince you to buy something, and then manipulative on the other side, right? Which is to get you to buy something that you really don't need. And now with the advent of technology and all this tracking um, and and using your location and the things that you, you uh, the, the products that you search for on the internet in, in order to package together data and sell this to, to companies as part of advertising, quote unquote, he saw this problem that I think pissed him off, right? It made him angry. Um, and I love, um, you know, we've just seen this time and time again, Bella, where an entrepreneur kind of gets fired up about a, a problem. Um, and it's where some people might just complain to their partner or their friend or their coworker about it. He saw an opportunity there um, for a new business and a new technology uh, base that he could use to solve the problem. So I think that's the underlying theme that's really um, a cool story here. Yeah, I agree, Mike. It was a cool story. So let's uh, dive into the interview with uh, Richard Stokes. Hello, listeners. Bela here. I'm connected via Skype with Rich Stokes. He is the founder and CEO of Winston Privacy. This is Richard's second company. His first was AdGrow, which was an ad data aggregator and collector that was acquired. So he had a successful exit there. And he spent six years in the industry. And at one point, uh, he had an epiphany. Uh, he realized that the initial project he set out to make collecting of data uh, had gone too far. So he left that to do the opposite, to stop the ad industry and others from spying on you. So I think this should be an interesting conversation and discussions. Uh, welcome to the show, Rich. Thanks, Bela. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So uh, tell us a little bit about your new company here, uh, Winston Privacy, and what does it do? Yeah, so Winston is a hardware device that you plug into your home network, and it's intended to take the bad guys off your network. And by bad guys, we mean uh, more or less all the players in the uh, surveillance machine 
that is tracking consumers, everything that they do, recording that, um, using it against them in various ways. So, uh, you know, the Cambridge Analytica's are just sort of the tip of the iceberg. You know, there's thousands of other companies and entities which are collecting this data. And, you know, Winston's designed to um, get them off your network and uh, make everything do a lot more private. Yeah. You know, the first time that the, the light went off in my, my thick skull about all the data that people collect is, uh, I think it was the, either it was either the FBI or the CIA was going to one of the cell phone providers to get information on users. Yeah. And I thought that, that was sort of interesting, right? Yeah, bounty hunters as well. Um, of course, ad, ad companies have been doing that since the early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it, so you said it's a piece of hardware. Um, was there a secret sauce here? Is there some invention that you guys did? Well, yeah, there's quite a few. We've, we filed two sets of claims, um, to protect our work. Um, but the reason it is hardware is, um, you know, when I was in the early stages of planning Winston, you know, I looked back over the last 20 years of privacy and I wondered, you know, why it failed. Um, and frankly, it did fail. Um, there were ad blockers out there, um, browser extensions, VPNs, and yet none of it had really done anything to stop uh, consumer surveillance. So most of it is a placebo. Um, we decided to make it hardware because, um, well, two reasons. One, it's easier to set up, just 60 seconds. You don't have to do a lot of installation of you know software packages, things like that. Makes it more suitable for a mainstream consumer audience. Uh, and the second reason is because it protects all of the devices in your home. And the reason for that is really important because you know, advertisers and big tech, um, they're putting these devices in people's homes. It's uh, not so much for convenience, although, of course, you know, some of it is. Um, but they're using the devices that you have installed, even the permutations of the different devices that you have installed um, to further track you. So we have to protect those as well. And by other devices, you're you're meaning like smart TVs, uh, things like uh, these Alexa and Siri type devices. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so uh, how does this work? Uh, in other words, uh, you know, I spend a fair amount of time on my laptop in the house, and you know, doing things that I do. Uh, but I also spend a fair amount of time on my cell phone when I'm out of the house and I'm not connected to my network. So I'm connected to my cell phone provider's network. Is there any help there in that regard? Yeah. In fact, we have a prototype um, application. It's a mobile app for iOS and Android, which allows you to establish an encrypted tunnel between your phone and your tablet when you're away from home. Uh, and your Winston in your home. So uh, no matter where you're at, whether you're on a you know star Starbucks wire, uh, wireless network or you're just driving your car and you're on the cellular cellular network, um, this app is on and it stays on as you move from network to network and keeps all of your traffic encrypted. Yeah. Oh, very nice because you know everywhere we go, we're connected these days. That's and, right. Uh, so just kind of securing my home is one important step, but it's it's not a complete step. That, that's right. You know, and that, that really kind of plays into the conversation about entrepreneurship. You know, you have to really focus on doing one thing really well before you branch out. And so, you know, early on, we recognized the mobile component for this was going to be big, um, but we had to get the privacy protection really solid in the home first um, and really just knock out the user experience before we started expanding. So for us, it was uh, largely a matter of focus. Yes, yes. And you sell this uh, product, this box, you said, uh, to end users. That's right. That's right. Uh, it's currently selling on uh, Kickstarter. Um, that campaign ends in just a few days. It will then be available for a little while uh, on Indiegogo before we switch back to selling on our website. Yeah. So uh, talk to me about Kickstarter. What was your experience like there? You know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs who read about it and um, want to sort of understand that a little better. So uh, fill in the blanks there. Yeah. So Kickstarter for a hardware company um, is pretty risky. Uh, I think it was somebody at Techstars 
told me a couple years ago, they said, you know, most of the hardware companies that go on Kickstarter end up crowdfunding their way out of business. And the reason is, you know, unlike software, you have a bill of materials and a supply chain to manage. And inevitably what happens is you're in the early planning phases in order to get your business. Um, your partners are going to quote you pretty low prices. But as you move along and get more established, your prices throughout the supply chain are going to constantly increase. And so before you know it, you know, your bomb could be 60 to 80, maybe even 100% higher than you originally anticipated. So what a lot of hardware companies on Kickstarter do is they, they come out shooting too early. They underprice the product because, you know, the people who are helping them on Kickstarter want the product to be as cheap as possible to get more business. They're paid on commission. And so you end up in a situation where if you've done this, then you're actually selling product at a at a massive loss. And, you know, and I, I was looking at a company that did this yesterday and they're really suffering for it because they ended up having to cut corners everywhere from the software to the hardware itself to shipping. Um, and it was just really all around a bad experience for, for everybody involved. So what we did was uh, we worked backwards. We didn't think of it as crowdfunding. We thought of it as a way to prove demand for a product that we already had just about ready to sell. So, you know, we spent 17 months in R&D. We did traditional uh, market-driven research, product configuration studies, and so on. Uh, we put the product together, did an engineering trial followed by two field trials, we did all that before we launched our Kickstarter campaign, you know, so that was a little bit uh, of a different experience for us. Yeah. So you're, uh, it sounds like you're almost using Kickstarter to identify some early adapters and early users and, and get uh, good feedback from them as opposed to helping you, you know, define the product and develop the product. That's exactly right. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, let's take a step back. Uh, let's talk about Rich uh, and what he was doing when he was uh, six and seven years old. Uh, were you uh, tell me about your childhood a little bit? <laughs> so uh, my father got a TRS-80 back in 1977 or 78. Um, so I was a real young kid. I was I was kind of like the kids today, you know, who are on tablets um, at a very, very early age. But I was on a, uh, you know, a, a, a trash 80, you know, I loved it. Yeah. And so, you know, I learned to code on that. Um, I eventually was in a situation where I was, you know, uh, by fifth grade, I was telling the teachers, showing them how to use the Apple uh, 2Es in the computer lab at school, which we were lucky enough to have at that point. Um, so, you know, I spent my teenage years pretty much in Radio Shack. You know, I went there all the time. I'd get parts. I'd build stuff. Just very curious individual. Um that kind of led me naturally to uh, studying electrical and computer engineering at the University of Illinois, uh, Urbana-Champaign. And I came out of there and, uh, you know, started my professional career. Yeah. Oh, excellent. And uh, is there any sort of uh, entrepreneurship in the family? Well, you know, I think entrepreneurship uh, used to be much more common than it is today. Uh, my dad uh, owns an auto shop on the south side of Chicago, you know, and he started that in the early 60s. Uh, you know, so I, there were a lot more small businesses back then. I think it was probably more common than it is today. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I guess I guess in a way, yes, that counts. So you were sort of exposed to the notion of uh, having your own business uh, and understanding the trials and tribulations of doing something like that. Yeah, to some extent. You know, I, I didn't really get into the business as much, but certainly um, – yeah, I mean, it wasn't a steady paycheck, you know, office gig. Right, right, right. And uh, when you graduated uh, from uh, Urbana, uh, what was the next step? So I went to work for a company called Lante here in Chicago, um, which eventually went public uh, as a consulting company run by Mark Tebby. Um, I uh, went from company to company, getting experience as, uh, as more or less a contractor consultant throughout that time. Um uh, you know, just worked on a whole variety of projects. And they gave me a really um, good perspective, I think, on a lot of different business apps. And, you know, it was sometime, I want to say in the late 90s, and Alta Vista was still the search engine of choice. So mm -hmm. <laughs> this is a long time ago. And kind of funny, I still remember um, having this uh, this epiphany one day. I'm like, 
all these people are using the search engine and typing in searches. I wonder if there was a way to get that and use that for something. This was in the late 90s. Um, I didn't act on that for a while, um, but eventually I did. And so it was a little bit prescient. Wow, cool. Now, the, uh, you know, one of the, you said an interesting thing there. So the, the first firm you worked for out of college was uh, a, a consulting uh, operation? Yes. You know, there, there's a, not that there's themes from all the people we've interviewed, but th- there is, a, I would say, a disproportionate number of folks who their first job out of school is, you know, one of these consulting firms. And, and they all talk about this notion of getting a broad exposure to various different sort of opportunities and companies. And then that really gave them a very solid foundation for when they decided to branch out on their own. You know, I, I never thought about that, but that definitely um, rings true in my experience. I mean, it's not just seeing, you know, different, um, you know, business models and, you know, technical environments and so on, but you're also dealing with a lot of people in different roles, yeah. you know, especially in a consulting role, you're, you're exposed um, to marketing and sales a lot more than you would be, uh, you know, as a salaried engineer. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could be a electrical computer science guy uh, locked in a closet and, and uh, you know, being a bit facetious and, and not have a lot of exposure to sort of how the business works, various different uh, factors and metrics that drive things. So right. I think this notion of a, of a consulting uh, opportunity is a is a good uh, solid foundation and and I've heard that heard that before. So what sort of spurred you to to leave that and and kind of go out on your own? So it's kind of a interesting path. Um in the early 2000s, uh, you know, I had begun my MBA at Northwestern and what I learned from that is I really really liked advertising. I was just fascinated by it. And so I made the choice to go work for Leo Burnett, which is a very well-known uh, global advertising agency. And so while I was there, you know, I was, I was learning a lot, working on a bunch of different projects there as well. But um, a couple of my former employees from a past position, um, they had gone off and started their own company. And that company was called Giant Software. So very few people have heard of this company today. But back in the day, they were kind of big. What they what they had created was um, an anti-spyware program that collected all the threat data from individual computers and allowed them to analyze it and find uh, new threats faster than anybody else. And so Microsoft ended up buying them eventually. Um, I, I think it only took about two years. And so that became Windows Defender. So everybody has heard of this today. Um, mm-hmm. But my, my past, my former employees, they invented that. And so while this was going on, they said, hey, you know, you really got to check out this anti-spyware uh, industry. This is pretty incredible. I mean, this stuff really sells. You know, we're helping a lot of people. It's a lot of fun. And so I looked at it. I was like, you know, um, I, I kind of want to work around the marketing side of it. I want to re- you know, work on the technology um, as much. I want a different experience. And so what I created was a consumer reports testing lab. And so we had these computers. Um, we would flash them with a new image. We would install two or 3,000 viruses on this image. Um, it's spyware programs. And we would just run these programs and see what percentage of them they could detect and clean up. And we published these reports online. And people loved them. They clicked through to the products. Um, and we would take a commission of whatever we sold. And it ended up being... So lucrative at that point um, that I then quit my job at Leo Burnett to do this. So while this was going on, yet another person uh, who I was involved with at the time, he reached out and he said, hey, look, you know, uh, you're selling a lot of anti-spyware. You're my number two vendor, uh, the number one guy selling six times as much as you. And I have no idea how he's doing. I said, great. So I called up. Uh, the, the usual players are called CompScore. I called up Nielsen. I called up Hitwise. Those are the three, three companies. CompScore and Nielsen didn't even return my call. And Hitwise sent me back a report that said, hey, you know, they're getting their traffic off the search engines. And I was like, oh, the search engines. You know, and this is back before Google had even hit a billion dollars in revenue at this point. They had just launched AdWords, you know, the uh, self-service platform. 
for advertising, right, right. which was an innovation. And so um, they could not tell me anything more than that. So I wrote software, which I installed literally on my media center in my living room. And this would go out, it would crawl the net, um, crawl the search engines, it would find every competitor's ad. And I compiled that, developed some heuristics around it to create my own marketing um, search campaign. So once I had done that, the tables turned, I ended up um, growing massively. I became the number one anti-spyware affiliate in the U.S. for a couple of years there. And I turned that into my project um, at Northwestern in entrepreneurship. That became Ad Guru, uh, which I got a B on, by the way. That was my, uh, I got a B on. Uh, uh, but I did end up quitting, going full-time doing that. And, um, you know, I started that in Late 2004, by early 2005, we had our first customers and we were on our way. And and was AdGuru, uh, how was that funded? So initially, you know, I put it together with just equity and self-funding. Um, then we ended up taking a small angel investment. I mean, in total, it was, you know, around $600,000. Okay. And that, and that was it? That's all, the, that's all the outside capital you guys took in? Yes, Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, Very nice. Yeah, and uh, so speaking of funding, I, I'm I'm going to bounce around here a little bit. But uh, in your in your current business, um, Winston Privacy, why? It sounds like you know you're a successful entrepreneur. You've you've done some pretty good things. You could probably go knock on the door of most venture capital firms and get an audience and and probably raise some capital that way. Um, what's the, what's the path that you're taking and why? Well, you know, that's exactly what we did. Uh, so when I was putting together the plan around this, I thought about bootstrapping it and I thought, well, you know, I could do a really mediocre job for you know, maybe $400,000. Uh, and this would be very high risk for me personally. Um, and I, you know, began socializing this and, you know, some other people in my network thought it was a great idea. Um, they convinced me very wisely, you don't want to take on all this risk yourself. You need to um, not only diversify that, but you also want to get other people involved just because it expands your network um, and gets other people working on it as well. So now that's what we ended up doing. So I um, left the ad industry in October of 2017. Uh, I then set up shop at MHub, which is the hardware accelerator uh, here in Chicago, and Basically, you know, I, it was just me and a whiteboard and um, the Internet, you know, so I would put together quantitative marketing studies, um, run those in a double blind panel, all that, um, you know, that was all census um, balance. So, you know, it wasn't people I knew. I'd actually go out there and hire um, survey companies to do this stuff for me and, you know, put the put the whole concept together and by December um, of that year. You know, we had a pretty solid concept. Every investor I talked to, um, like you said, it was, it's a lot easier once you've had an exit. They do want to talk to you, um, but they all pretty much said no, and they said, "Hey, you know, nobody really cares about privacy." And you know, I beg to differ. Uh, what I had found was everybody, almost everywhere, universally cares about privacy. Now, only a very small percentage of people actually did something about it, and that was the the critical difference. And so, my research indicated um, things that. They had never suspected and, you know, the privacy industry had never suspected. And that's what became the germ of Winston. So even with all that, though, it was still very hard in the, in the beginning. What turned around for me was Cambridge Analytica. So when that scandal broke in April of 2018, uh, it was like a Christmas gift. Um, we were funded two months later. Yeah, yeah. It's not the timing is important. <laughs> right. For sure. For sure. Got it. So, uh would you be comfortable saying how much money you guys have raised? Um, I will say it's in the low seven figures. Oh, okay. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, so uh, where are you? I think you mentioned this earlier, but let's just refresh memories here. So where's Winston Privacy now? Sounds like you're getting about ready to ship out your beta level product. Well, actually, we did our beta levels, our beta products in February. We did another round in may um so we've we've gotten a lot of feedback and we've been iterating um and so that'll 
that'll keep going each uh, time we send out more units. Um, it's more than the batch before. And it's not a matter of not having the units ready to go. It's just a matter of, you know, we want to be very thoughtful and give attention to the people who need help, you know, as they find and discover new, new problems, things like that. So um, we have a whole lot of product, thousands of units um, ready to ship. Um, it's just a matter of us, you know, uh, staging those and shipping those out over the rest of the year. Yeah. And shipping them out, it sounds like shipping them out in a manner in which you can support them as they get delivered and set up by your customers. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, one of the things that I was pushed really hard on was to go faster, um, by the investors and they kept saying, Hey, you know, why don't you ship out, you know, 10,000, um, in 2018 and then try to get a hundred thousand in you know, 2019. And you know what? I, I'm like, you don't realize you have to put this stuff out. And you, you have to really strive hard to get a good customer experience. You know, when you're developing a new technology, you're going to break a lot of things. There's going to be some challenges um, all on the way. And so you just have to be really thoughtful and methodical about how you roll it out. You don't want to go too fast because, you know, if the marketing gets too far ahead of the technology, then uh, I think that's where you get in trouble. Right. Right. So if I had one of these uh, boxes installed on on my network here at home, uh, how would I know it's working? What what difference would I see in my sort of daily browsing around the Internet? Well, most of the web is going to load a lot faster. So on average, you know, having one of these devices, your page load times um, go down by half or more. So that's the big thing. And then the, the amount of clutter um, that you see and the number of pop-ups and all kinds of stuff that you know are just on the web, um, that all goes away. And so the web becomes a lot less stressful you know, as you're using it. Uh, when I leave home, you know, for instance, if I'm on a mobile phone or I'm not on a listed network uh, and I have to use the web, it just, it's really aggravating <laughs> just the amount of nuisance uh, stuff that's out there. So that's, yeah. that's the first thing, you know, you, you see, uh, obviously a lot less advertising because the advertising depends on tracking and surveilling users. Uh, you know, when I do see ads, um, surprisingly, they tend to be house ads. So, um, I got my first Smokey the Bear, only you could put out Forest Fires ad uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was really proud of that. Um, that meant that nobody in the ad ecosystem could figure out how to sell something to me. So <laughs> they can be Smokey the Bear. Uh, All right. You know, so you see that, and, you know, and then we've been working on building um, feedback loops into the product. You know, we don't collect any data. We don't ship it off the box. So this has been a real challenge. But one of the things that we've discovered that people like seeing is how much data they're saving. So we figured out a way to estimate um, based on what we block, how many bytes that we've saved. And we display that, you know, both on our dashboard as well as the, the browser extensions that we ship with the product. Okay. And... Uh, let's say I, I'm interested in buying a new car. So I go search some, you know, car websites, uh, getting information and data. And then without a, without a, 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 a Winston box, um, I'll start getting, sure enough, I'll start getting ads served up to me from various different uh, car dealerships. Uh, what, if I, what if I want that to happen? Is there a way that I can selectively sort of turn things on or off? Uh, because maybe for a short period of time, getting those ads is of benefit to me. Uh, but at some point in time, I'm not interested in them anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is one of the things that we discovered. Uh, there, there were all these points of friction with privacy software. You know, privacy has been around for 20 plus years. And... People were just doing it wrong, and we discovered these just these different areas um, and reasons why this had never caught on. And so, one of these reasons is this very snobbish or cynical attitude. You know, all advertising is bad, right? And I had this conversation with somebody um, on the privacy subreddit a few weeks ago, and he wrote an essay about how all advertising, no matter what, um, is inherently evil and it's you know designed to influence people against their free will, and you know. Well, I just don't believe that. Um, so the point of friction there was we want to be agnostic about what people do, um, but we want to flip the model, right? We said instead of opting in to all of the surveillance and tracking every time you go on the web, 
um, and letting these people on your network, even though you don't know that they're there, um, we're going to flip it. We're going to say, look, you're going to opt out by default. And if you want to see ads, if you want to share your location, or you want to do other things, um, we give you a button. You press that button and it works as normal. Got it. Got it. Uh, so uh, what do you expect a device like this to sell for? So that's a really interesting point. Um, pricing with any new, uh, you know, startup is pretty much a, a, a top priority. So we have played around with a bunch of different pricing models. Um, we went into Kickstarter um, with the best one we had discovered so far, and that was, you know, we're going to retail this for two hundred forty-nine dollars. Um, we'll give you a year for free. We'll charge eight dollars a month after and that's to cover every device you own and that was based on a lot of different factors but we price tested it and it did pretty well you know we said well look as we put more and more of these units out we could kind of scale we'll get the hardware below 200 dollars we recognized that there was going to be a big um, lift in sales from that so that was you know the best pricing let's call it a hypothesis maybe it was better than a hypothesis it was i'd say it was a theory at that stage so we were um, about a week into the kickstarter and somebody on my team pointed out, you know, this is a great opportunity to try out the lifetime subscription. Um, would people respond to this? And we said, okay, so um, we put a lifetime subscription out there where you, you pay us up front, um, basically the lifetime value of the current offer, and you never have to pay us again, right? And that solves, you know, working capital needs, and it also um, uh, ended up being very attractive to users, um, which was, uh, I'll be honest, I didn't predict how popular it was going to be. I think over 80 or 85% of our uh, Kickstarter revenues now come from these higher-priced lifetime subscriptions. And we did a, feed, uh, a survey to get some feedback on that. And what we were told was, hey, look, if I have this lifetime subscription, I can get rid of my monthly VPN bill. I can get rid of that subscription that I hate. Never occurred to us, Right. So um, the feedback that we've gotten and just the learning from Kickstarter, uh, really another great advantage of that community. Yeah. So I think this is another good point you're making and, and one that most people don't think about Kickstarter uh, as a vehicle for testing out various different uh, pricing models uh, and pricing strategies. So um, I, think, I think that's a wonderful point that you just made about that, those capabilities. Uh, so what's, uh, what's next for you guys at Winston Privacy? Yeah, so you know, right now we're wrapping up the Kickstarter. We're shifting into Indiegogo. Um, and you know, all hands are, uh, are, are basically now um, focused on just scaling and improving the product. Right? So we expect to have um, all of our units shipped by the holiday season, by, uh, basically by October of this year. Um, and that includes uh, another experiment that we're doing where we're sending a bunch of units out to the UK to see how it does there. Um, you know, because we have some theories about that market, very different than market than the US, that we know for sure. So it's really about iterating, listening to, uh, you know, the people who are now installing Winston, um, improving things, you know, and acting as, and reacting as quickly as possible. Yeah, so... Uh- it sounds also like you, you want to branch out. So right now you just sell in the United States or North America? Well, we started off just selling in the U.S. and Canada. And again, one of those things that we learned from Kickstarter, uh, we had people from all around the world literally begging us to ship them a unit. You know, um, So we looked at all the different markets. We ended up, you know, because it is a privacy and encryption device, we ended up um, hire, hiring an uh, attorney out of London just to give us an opinion on this. Like, is this even legal in the UK? And it was, and he said, it's totally fine. Uh, sounds like a great product. People would really like it there. And so we opened it up and we ended up, did, we ended up selling quite a few units um, in the UK. So that was one of those unexpected uh, surprises that came out of Kickstarter as well. Yeah. So as the, is your pricing strategy different in other parts of the world? Today it isn't. Um, Certainly, as we get bigger, um, it might, you know, um, hard to say, you know, it's, it's a startup. So, you know, six months from now, 12 months from now, everything could be completely different. Yeah. And and what about your ability to provide service and support as you start uh, 
expanding the number of time zones that your customers are in. How yeah, that was a that? major factor um, in our decision-making process. That's why we decided just to limit ourselves to the UK. So again, we can just develop some learning around there. Um, you know, I have sold in Europe before. I know how different it is. The time zone thing is actually um, not as big of a deal in the UK. Um, and with this product in particular, people don't seem to expect, uh, you know, just to be able to chat with somebody at any time, you know. So email is fine or forum support is fine. So um, right now we're just taking a wait and see approach with it. Yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent. Uh, as you as you reflect back on on the things you've done from you know the the TRS eighty all the way up to now, are are there one or two things that sort of drive you or motivate you that kind of ma- make you want to explore these things? Yeah, you know, there are principles, and I think the as we get older, we acquire experience, we synthesize that into sort of our own working principles. And I think a big part of entrepreneurship lies in recognizing what those personal principles are and then operating from them. Because, you know, when you're running headlong into this black hole of risk, the traditional, you know, MBA models and things like that, the traditional wisdom doesn't apply anymore. Um, you know, the smartest VCs I've ever talked to, they'll, they'll say at best they're, they're batting 50%, you know, because they just don't know what's going to happen. Um, and there's no way to tell. So for me, that comes down to figuring out what your principles are. So as an example, you know, one of the things that really motivated me about this, um, which I didn't get in other concepts that I looked at, was this ability to help people, right? Just help the average person as opposed to um, going B2B and, you know, helping some corporation become slightly more efficient in some way. Um, what I felt here was, Look, I didn't like the direction that surveillance capitalism was taking the world. It wasn't a world I wanted my kids to grow up in. And for me, it was an opportunity to basically to leverage my talents and my experience to help a multiple of the number of people that I could ever do doing anything else. You know, so that in turn, you know, that sounds kind of uh, lofty, but it really actually did help to inform some practical decisions, you know? So one of the decisions we had to make early on was whether we're going to be a B2B company or a B2C. And I think Winston's interesting because it could be successful in either case, but for me, the personal satisfaction from helping ordinary people just outweighed any of the other considerations, you know? So that's what I mean by operating from principle. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, so in addition to uh, helping other folks, I think that's really interesting what you said, this notion of, uh, you know, if you're B2B, you're fundamentally helping other companies become more efficient or improve their products or services and make more money, I guess. Uh, and here you're, you're helping individuals. Uh, are there other sort of guiding principles that, that, that help drive you? Well, you know, persistence, I think, is a big one. Um, there's an old adage by Calvin Coolidge. You can look it up. Uh, my dad, when I was a little kid, uh, he this was back in, gosh, it had to be the late 70s or early 80s. He said it, he would pay me $100 if I can copy this perfectly in a calligraphy pen. And if you've ever done calligraphy, you know how easy it is just to mess up and smudge. So I, so I ended up, <laughs> right. uh, you know, as a little kid writing this, this passage out hundreds of times that kind of became ingrained in my personal operating system. So persistence is is a really uh, big operating principle. Uh, If it comes easy, it's probably not defensible, which means that you have to identify problems that are very difficult and you have to be able to persist longer than anybody else and solve those problems. You know, so that was another principle that played into the development of Winston. You know, so as we went along, um, I'll tell you the, the first versions of Winston were really, really bad. Um, they were way too effective at blocking things. In a lot of ways, they resembled, you know, other privacy software out there. So when you block everything, though, um, you break everything, and the web starts treating you like a virus because you you look like one. And so you know, there's all these challenges that came up with 
um, how do we let certain things through and how do we not let other things through and um, how do we continue to look like a human and fuzz the boundaries so that they can't tell much about us and can't target us um, and still be able to access the web in a really convenient, fast manner. And so this was just a crazy technical challenge and it, it did take over a year of just one roadblock after another um, things that, you know, I didn't always think we were going to be able to solve, but in the end we did, you know, so that all ties back into the whole idea of this. Um, you have to be operating from core principles. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, how, how big a uh, business is Winston privacy right now? How many employees do you have? So we have a mix, right? Um, wherever we can, we try to contract out, uh, particularly if it's in areas where we don't necessarily need like an ongoing um, competitive advantage, like industrial design or things like that. So uh, full-time employees, we're around seven right now, but we just took account there's um, over 35 people working with us in some way or another, uh, either in design, um, coding, uh, sales, marketing, you know, and all those roles combined. So um, somewhere between 35 and 40. Right, right. And on a, in a typical week, I, I won't ask in a typical day, but in a typical week, where do you spend your time? Can you give us a rough idea of breaking it down, you know, as, as sort of a CEO of a, a up-and-coming company? How does, that, how does that play out? Yeah, I would say uh, the first two hours of my day is generally spent, to, uh, uh, spent for answering emails, calls, you know, sort of uh, things that will pile up if you don't tend to them. So I like to chunk these things down and just get them out of the way, and that frees up the rest of the day. Um, probably about a third of my week is spent in meetings, um, either with employees or you know vendors, possible partners, and so on. Um, I would say probably another 20% of my time is spent communicating with investors, you know, particularly um, investors want to talk to you if things are going really bad or if they're going really well. They really want to talk to you then. Um, and that's a great problem to have, but it does take up a lot of time. You know, so I have investors who text and call me every single day, sometimes multiple times a day, just because they're so excited about the way things are going. And I am too, but, you know, you do have to manage that. Uh, and, you know, whatever's right, left, right. Um, you know, I get in the trenches and I work. You know, I'm, a, I'm an engineering marketer. Um, so, you know, I tend to spend most of my time in those two areas. Right. Now you're located in Chicago, yes. is that correct? And uh, so I would say that you know some percentage of folks would who wanted to start a business like this would say, you know what, I'll move into Silicon Valley because that's where the hot spot is, that's where the infrastructure is, et cetera. And and you you guys decided to uh, stay in Chicago. So talk about that uh, decision making process a little bit and and why you decided to do that. Well, you know, I, I think the scarce resource in any startup is the founder. It's not capital. Uh, it's not the network. It's the founder, right? And so if I'm the scarce resource, well, that means the, re the other resources are going to come to me. Um, you know, we have family here. And so we said, we're going to stay here. This is we're going to do it. Now, in the case of Winston, that also really helps us for two other reasons. Um, one is we didn't want to get deeply enmeshed in that big tech network uh, out on the coast, right? So if we were in Silicon Valley, um, you know, sooner or later, uh, we would be in some sort of relationship, formal or not, with Google or Facebook. And these are companies that we're fundamentally at odds with, uh, you know, because of their just rampant data collection practices. So, you know, being in Chicago has separated us from them. Now, what people don't realize, um, even though valuations are lower in Chicago, that actually plays into um, the entrepreneur's favor. So one of the, um, I think the myths, especially with uh, inexperienced entrepreneurs, is they want to get the valuations as high as they can. And Silicon Valley, that whole VC ecosystem feeds into that, right? And they'll give them high valuations. So what happens typically is, you know, if the company does well and they do this hockey stick um, growth, they follow that curve, which nobody ever does. But for the, the one in a million that does, you know, that works out really well for them. Um, for everybody else, though, you end up with 
a down round or you get diluted in some way with a subsequent financing round. So um, one of the pieces of advice I give to entrepreneurs is, you know, don't let your valuations get out of control. And if you have that, if you share that philosophy, then being in Chicago is great because there, there aren't as many VCs here. The valuations aren't frothy like they are on the coast. Um, so that that is really consistent. Um, the other thing I would say about the Midwest in general is that returns here um, are actually better for the VC industry in the Midwest than they are on both coasts. So again, that really plays into the insurance favor. Yeah. Yeah, and, and those returns are driven by valuations. So if the VC is overpaying, so to speak, then his return right. is going to be less. So if there's lower valuations uh, in certain parts, geographic parts of the country, then the, there's advantages to sometimes both sides That's of right. that equation. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, we've been going at this uh, almost uh, 40 minutes or 40 plus minutes. Uh, so I want to wrap it up shortly. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I haven't? <laughs> Are there other, point, that is, other that points really you question. want to make? Anything that you um, no, I mean, I, I think it's a good all-around survey of the experience. Um, no, uh, not, nothing that comes to mind. Okay, great. Well, I do have one more question. Uh, and if you were uh, sitting down with a, a young entrepreneur who's you know got uh, a great enthusiasm and, and has a great idea, wants to go pursue it, what what's the two or three key pieces oh, of advice gosh. you would give? Um, that really depends on the context because this, this happens quite a bit um, over at MHub. You know, I do have these conversations with people. Um, you know, I think probably the, you know, speaking generically, you have to hustle, right? So for a first-time entrepreneur, it's a challenge because you're an unknown quantity. So it's not easy for you to just um, get a meeting with an investor or just to even get advice. Um, it can be difficult. So you have to prove yourself. And the best way to prove yourself as a first-time entrepreneur is to get some revenue. So if you can um, hustle, um, and it's a lot easier in B2C, by the way, uh, than it is in B2B, because you still have the same problem of not having any track record. Um, but if you can hustle and get revenue and prove that you're actually delivering a product that people want and you have some market fit, um, that's how you break in as that first-time entrepreneur. Right. Right. Uh, so the second piece of advice that I give people is whenever you meet with, you know, a VC, especially if they uh, follow up and ask you something, you need to get back to them right away because that's a test. Um, VCs will ask you for things which entrepreneurs complain about, you know, and what they don't realize is that it's not so much about the thing that they asked you for. It's that they want to see how responsive that you are if you're actually really fully committed to this where um, you get back to them right away. Because, you know what, if you're working another job, if you're kind of doing it as a hobby, you're not really serious, um, that tends to show in your responsiveness. So that's one thing I recommend. Yeah, great, great advice, Rich. Great advice. Well, hey, let's wrap this up. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to chat with me and to share your story at uh, Winston Privacy. It sounds really interesting. And uh if people want to check you out on uh, Kickstarter or any other way, what's the best way to uh, connect with you guys? Well, the best way, just go to our website, winstonprivacy.com. You can find us on Kickstarter right now. Uh, we'll be on Indiegogo next. Um, but after that, just go to our website. Okay, excellent. I will make sure to put uh, the link to winstonprivacy.com into the show notes. And uh, Rich, thanks again. Uh, have a wonderful day. And I wish you guys all the best of luck. Thanks, Bailey. Thanks for having me. Bela, fantastic interview with Rich Stokes and a uh, really interesting company, Winston Privacy. The first thing I did was jump on the website and go check, check out this product because uh, it really um, got me thinking about how we approach uh, security and privacy um, in our own homes. What were your thoughts? Well, I thought uh, there was a couple interesting points uh, that he made. And uh, one of them was I thought, which is kind of, I didn't expect uh, the conversation to go that way, but it was around Kickstarter. And uh, he's he's using Kickstarter to uh, help fund sort of his first product. And he talked about sort of, uh, you know, some of the careful things, the things you need to be careful about 
uh, when using Kickstarter, especially in a product that's a hardware product. So he makes a, a box, you know, that you that you plug into your network at home. And uh, so he's got a supply chain that he has to manage. He has to uh, take a bill of materials uh, and order parts, etc. And uh, I thought the notion of being careful about the amount of money you raise on Kickstarter and making sure that you don't sort of uh, order too many of your initial bill of material because chances are um, you're going to want to change it. And I've seen this happen uh, with companies that we fund, uh, quite frankly, uh, in the venture business, where uh, they have their design uh, complete, and then they want to go immediately overseas uh, to China uh, to get their product sourced. And, you know, there's a 10,000 unit minimum, and it's COD. Uh, or in, worse than COD, it's you, you got to put 50% down. And uh, so that sucks up a lot of capital. And chances are, uh, on your first design, uh, 10000 is way too many to buy because you're going to have something you're going to want to change. And uh, if you, if you or, or order too many of, of your first generation product, you're going to end up with a lot of obsolete uh, inventory and product. And that's basically a perfect way to burn cash. So I thought his point there about being careful about that, understanding your supply chain, understanding your order quantities, and doing it in small increments, increments, and not necessarily trying to save two cents on every unit in the beginning. You're much more focused on conserving cash and getting the order quantity right and not having to write off a lot of obsolete product. Agreed, Bill. And it goes back to a point that I've made a ton of times in the classroom over the years, and that is finance and supply chain go together hand in hand. And if you want to be a really good supply chain person, you need to understand finance. And if you want to be a really good corporate finance person, you have to be a really good supply chain person because how you burn your capital and your amount of working capital and understanding terms and understanding the cash to cash cycle, right, where you want to pay for the things that you're buying as far down the line as you can, right? Nine, you know, 90 days, 120 days, right? You want to keep that cash and pay later and you want your customers to pay you, if not now, right? Before they, you even ship the product. So managing this cash cycle is critical. And I think when you're just starting out on Kickstarter, it's really hard to, to or really easy to make a lot of mistakes in terms of managing your cash flow um, rather than looking at your unit costs. Unit costs are really important. But cash flow is even more important. So I think this is a great takeaway uh, in terms of this relationship between your financial position and your supply chain. Um, anytime you're starting a business, but especially when you're using a pre-selling model like, like Kickstarter uh, or something like that. Yeah, everyone focuses on unit cost and it's, and it's about cash flow. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. Absolutely about cash flow. Uh, another point that I thought was interesting uh, was after uh, after college uh, he kind of joined a couple of consulting firms or, uh, and or and I think uh, we've seen this before with some other folks we've interviewed uh, this notion of joining a consulting firm I think uh, as as Rich put it gave him a great exposure to many different types of companies great exposure to many different ways of doing business and different corporate cultures. And uh, so I think as, as a first career move, often this is, uh, this is a great way to sort of get that exposure, work on a lot of different types of problems. And uh, he also figured out that, you know, for the long term, uh, while that uh, consulting experience uh, was good for him, but for the long term, that's not the career he wanted, uh, which I think is an also good learning opportunity and value. Uh, oftentimes figuring out what you don't want to do is just as important as figuring out what you want to do. Yeah, I loved how, you know, he kind of talked about his his career arc of technology going back from his, people don't even remember the Radio Shack TRS-80 he was talking about. That was my first computer too, by the way, um, back in the, uh, it must have been the late 70s, early 80s. But, uh, um, but yeah, and how his career has kind of spanned this arc of technology and this this shifting of, technology from something that was a discrete box to something that's become um, really embedded in every part of everybody's lives in most parts of the world. 
Um, and then you overlay that against his business experience, right? We did this consulting and then he was the advertising person. And he saw how kind of these fields were developing and it got him to this point in time where he said, aha, here's this product um, that could be right, right product, right place, right, right, right time um, to, to hit it big. So it'll be interesting to see what success that he, he has with this. But you can really trace back when he tells the story, the path he's taken um, as to how he got to where he is at, at this moment, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. Another thing, uh, another topic that came up that I thought was uh, pretty interesting was his uh, figuring out pricing uh, mm -hmm. with his products, sort of doing these experiments to trade off lifetime subscription costs uh, for existing monthly bills, uh, you know, working out various different pricing models and trying to zero in on that. I think the whole notion of pricing uh, one's product uh, is is really really uh, an interesting problem, and you know one of the things that that oftentimes happens, particularly with hardware companies, uh, is people take the cost of the bill of materials and they multiply it by two or three or four or five, and that's what the sale price is. And um, you know while that may make them feel comfortable about the margins, uh, that may not be the right way to price it. Uh, you may be able to price it for 10 times what your bill of material cost is. You got to think about the value you're providing to your customer. And with with his product here, uh, he's actually selling a piece of hardware, but he's sort of thinking about it more from a subscription type of pricing model than a necessarily a one-time. Uh, but as he learned, uh, some people are much more interested in a one-time pricing model. So uh, you got to figure out what your customers want and what works for them. And sometimes you have to have several different models because different customers are comfortable doing it different ways, right? Think of the automotive industry. Some people like to buy cars <laughs> outright. Some people like to lease them. Uh, and those are sort of different, different models. But the monthly payment is important to a lot of people. How much per month? And this is where sometimes, yeah, if it's a big expenditure, a monthly payment is a great way to essentially buy something beyond what I could afford to pay cash for. But this was the reverse where he was saying, look, a one-time payment can can end a monthly payment for you. And he was talking about um, these um, these VPNs, these virtual private networks that people are, that are popular now. People are paying, you know, $7, $10, $12 a month for this service right and he's like ah i can flip this on its head instead of using a monthly payment to get me to afford a car or a house all right uh, you know something big i can flip this and say hey by giving me a big chunk of money up front i can eliminate one of these monthly payments for you and give you peace of mind i thought that was really cool and he said by his own admission he stumbled on that right, right? by doing these experience experiments by being curious and i love that here's a guy that's got a lot of work experience and he's still experimenting. He doesn't assume he knows everything about the customer, which I think is a critical um, competence of successful entrepreneurs. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, this notion of experimenting, whether it be with your product set, uh, whether it be with your pricing model, whether it be with your distribution model, uh, how you acquire customers, etc. Uh, I think that's really, really uh, an important characteristic and trait that entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial businesses have to have if they're going to survive in this rapidly changing environment. Yeah, great. All right, I think it's a wrap, huh? I agree, Mike. Let's uh, All right, well, let's wrap this one up. Yeah, well, thanks to Rich Stokes for joining us, and Bela, thanks for doing the interview. Uh, listeners, we're always thrilled that you decided to join us on another podcasting adventure for uh, for this week, and we hope you found the last hour or so interesting and thought-provoking and learned as much as we did from this. Um, as usual, we have a couple of small requests First is if you have questions about what we've discussed today, uh, if you have suggestions about topics or potential guests we should talk with in the future, uh, we'd be thrilled if you got in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And secondly, if you like what we're doing, please hit subscribe or like on your podcast app. Uh, uh, if you want to be radical and write a review for us, we'd uh, really appreciate it. Uh, and most importantly, if you know others that might find us interesting, please share us with them. So that's it for this week. Uh, thank you for spending time with us. Uh, we look forward to having you joining us for our next episode. So signing off uh, from my home office, uh, now that I'm retired here in upstate New York, that's it from here. See you, Mike. 
Thanks, Bella. And from over here on the other side of the Atlantic in Münster, Germany, I wish everybody a great week. Bye-bye. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co. 